LGBTQ philanthropy. What do fundraisers need to know? Hi, I'm Bill Stajakevich. This is the first day from the fundraising school. I'm joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Dale, one of the nation's leading researchers on this topic of LGBTQ philanthropy, which is also the title of Chapter 30 of Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, 5th edition, of which Elizabeth is the author. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being with us to help unpack all of the research-based findings that you have in this chapter. Thanks for having me. And and as I mentioned, you are a a leading researcher in this emerging area of research, and, and you make the point quite convincingly in the chapter that we know a lot, and there's still much more that we need to learn and discover. But based on what we know thus far, you you talk about how all philanthropic behaviors are influenced by identity. When we think of our neighbors in the LGBTQ community, how much of that is that identity alone combined with other identities? What have you seen in your research findings? That's a great question, Bill. And and really the whole area of identity-based philanthropy has grown quite a bit in the past decade. One of the things that that I see is that it can vary quite a bit based on the individual donor. So for some donors who identify as, as members of the LGBTQ community, their philanthropy is really directed to that community. Um, maybe because they also identify as someone who's HIV positive or or maybe just because of their past experience, you know, growing up, uh, coming out, and wanting to make things easier for others um, who are who are coming um, out as well, um, but you know there are also many donors where um, being gay is only one aspect of their identity, and it might uh, determine some of their charitable giving, but by no means all. I, I mean, most of most of us are also hold other identities, whether it's our gender our race or ethnicity, maybe we identify as being parents, Um, maybe we have just particular causes and interests that aren't informed by our identities, but are are part of our giving as well. So it can really vary quite a bit. Um, But one of the things I have seen in, in my research is that many LGBTQ donors do give something to the LGBTQ community, whether that's time, money, uh, or other resources, um, oftentimes if, if they are an active donor already. Um, but we also know there's lots of LGBTQ people out there who aren't giving at all. And so we think there's also great potential. You know, Elizabeth, what, what I really enjoyed as I read the chapter was this notion that human behavior is complex. And as people identify as LGBTQ in that community, that shouldn't necessarily be the only way they're viewed by anybody, let alone by a fundraiser, that there are all these other aspects uh, happening in their lives and in their identities. And in fact, you note, as the research continues to emerge, thanks to leaders like yourselves, that uh, it might be easy for a fundraiser to think, oh, therefore, they're giving all or most of their charitable dollars to specific LGBTQ nonprofits and causes. But that's not necessarily the case, right? Some studies find quite the opposite, right? Right. We're, we still don't have great data on LGBTQ giving kind of at large, um, but our indications are that for most LGBTQ people, they may only be giving 25 or 50 percent of their giving to LGBTQ causes, um, if that much at all. I mean, remember, we're talking about averages here, so there'll be some people who are 80 percent or 100 percent and some people at zero and everything in between. 
Um, so it's really about, you know, coming back to those fundamentals of getting to know your donors, um, getting to know people as people and individuals and finding out um, what their interests are. And sometimes, um, sometimes those interests can overlap. Um, you know, they might be giving to, um, you know, a college um, alma mater, alma mater, <laughs> I can't even say it today, alma mater, um, but they might also be interested in supporting the LGBTQ center on campus. Um, and that that's one where they might have a dual kind of uh, motivation um, or, you know, they might be giving to the animal shelter because that's where they adopted their dog from. Yeah, for me, the chapter then did a little bit of myth busting. Uh, in terms of if there is this misperception that, well, somebody who identifies as in the LGBTQ community is only giving there and as diverse and equitable and inclusive as my fundraising might be, my nonprofit might not be specifically identified exactly in that way. Oh, therefore, I can't approach them as a donor. That's not necessarily the case. And your research bears that out. Yes, that's exactly the myth that, that I set out to disprove. So. <laughs> um, uh, you, you know, I think, again, recognizing that there are probably LGBTQ constituents among nearly, uh, in most nonprofits, uh, maybe not some of the, you know, conservative religious nonprofits, but in general, you know, the, just like we, uh, we as a community are part of all facets of society, we're probably part of many nonprofits as well. And it's just important to recognize that. And I think that also speaks to what um, LGBTQ donors in particular are looking for from organizations that they feel included and recognized as a part of that broader community. Elizabeth, could you expand on that, please? Because your chapter uh, does such a wonderful job of saying, you know, there are actually a lot of similarities across different donor demographics. But you also point out there can be some unique motivations amongst the donors are LGBTQ. What are some of those unique motivations that fundraisers need to be aware of? Yeah, I think a lot of those motivations really center around issues around justice, equity, and inclusion. Um, so um, older individuals who maybe um, identified as, identify as LGBTQ and came out or didn't come out, uh, you know, during the period they, that they were growing up, might be really motivated to give because they want to make things better for um, youth today or or the people that have come after them, whether they had positive or negative experiences in, you know, schools and universities and so on. Um, growing up, I think there's another real motivation of just. Um, understanding that you are a part of a community that has not had equal rights in the United States and, and in many places around the world and wanting to um, really ensure that that giving um, that your giving is is helping to achieve greater equality for not only your own community, um, but other communities as well. And so a little bit of kind of shared um, understanding of kind of broader equity and justice claims. Um, and then, of course, you know, there are, you know, some LGBTQ organizations that are just, you know, a, richly a part of someone's life. Maybe they're a member of a, a chorus. There's a huge, huge uh, contingent of gay and lesbian choruses across the country. And if you're a choir member, you're probably supporting that organization as well. 
Um, so a real range in terms of those um, unique motivations, but I think at the heart, I just come back to the ideas of being motivated by um, justice, by equity, and by inclusion. And again, as fundraisers understand not to paint with a broad brush, not a one size fits all, that there's a lot of complexity um, and texture within giving from LGBTQ donors. Uh, to expand upon those motivations, uh, Elizabeth, your chapter points out there are some areas, though, that uh, donors are more likely to focus on. You mentioned advocacy. You just mentioned the choirs. You, you yeah. mentioned arts and culture in your chapter and also health. Can, can you expand yeah. on that, please? Well, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with uh, both some common interests and common causes. So, you know, certainly the push for LGBTQ equality um, makes that makes this community more likely to support um, policy and advocacy organizations that might be involved in that in those areas, um, whether kind of broad organizations like ACLU or more specific like Lambda Legal or HRC, which really do focus on the LGBTQ community. Um, in terms of health, I think, you know, the LGBTQ community's history with um, AIDS and HIV has, has probably led to a lot of additional support um, for health-related organizations, for organizations that promote safe sex or, um, you know, respectful relationships and, and so on. And then, um, you know, the arts community has, has, I think, been a common passion for uh, you know, a good a good segment of the LGBTQ population. And so um, it's probably not hugely surprising that they might be more philanthropic there as well. But the, but the differences also are not huge. Um, you know, they're, they're a little bit more likely. And again, it'll come down to individual donors, right? We can talk about donors as a group, but working one-on-one -on -one with a donor, that person's going to, you know, pick and choose their causes. And so I think that's just important to keep in mind. You know, when you talk about more causes, one of the interesting findings in the chapter as well is the number of nonprofits on average supported by LGBTQ donors. Now, rarely does a donor just give to one nonprofit. Usually right. the typical donor gives to multiple nonprofits, but your research finds that's even more true amongst LGBTQ donors. Can, can you speculate why or do the data inform us as to why that might be the case? I don't think there's one great reason as to why. I think um, it may be that uh, some donors are just, you know, kind of in contact with more nonprofits, more aware of the nonprofit sector. That awareness also often um, means that we'll give to more organizations. Um, and, and beyond that, I think uh, it may just point to kind of a, a philanthropic impulse that might be um, a little bit stronger in a community that has really relied on voluntary organizations um, to both serve as its, uh, you know, civic spaces as well as really help in the fight for for um, rights and equality. So that's yet another takeaway from this chapter that as fundraisers have that abundance mentality mm -hmm. with all of our donors, it certainly applies as we learn more about our neighbors who identify as LGBTQ. Elizabeth, you've given us so much information and there's so much more in the chapter. We want people to really spend time in chapter 30 here. But as you conclude, there's a long list of detailed recommendations at the end of the chapter. We don't have time to get all into all of them here, except to again, recommend that people get into the chapter. But are there a couple that really stand out for you that uh, you really want fundraisers to know? 
Yeah, I think the things that I hear most often um, from LGBTQ donors when I'm talking with them um, is that they want organizations to recognize that they exist. So making sure that you're profiling kind of a diverse group of donors um, in your um, publications and other materials. These donors are also very cognizant of organizations kind of non-discrimination statements. They want to make sure that they're included in that group. So if your organization has a policy um, to, to not discriminate on the basis of gender, gender identity, or sexual orientation, um, that's something that donors could easily look up online and might make a decision ba based on whether or not to give to you. And then I think the last one really comes down to data and data management. Um, so many of the database systems were created uh, decades ago and are sort of legacy mm. systems, right, uh, with salutations um, attached to them that sometimes have misidentified a same-sex couple. And so instead of saying Mr. and Mr., it'll say Mr. and Mrs. I personally am in favor of dropping a lot of salutations from, from our um, records and from how we address people. I think it's often more trouble than it's worth. Even within organizations I've worked in, uh, we've had, you know, we've had to remember to go hand correct some of our same-sex couples. And that just inevitably leads to mistakes. And it it might seem small, but that's a mistake that um, is often really felt among this community. And so one way to get that right is to just do away with it or to really make sure your data systems are, are up to par. Many broad themes and many particular specific ideas and recommendations in chapter 30, <laughs> LGBTQ philanthropy and the author, Dr. Elizabeth Dale. Uh, and this is in Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, the fifth edition, which is available on our website at philanthropy.iui.edu forward slash the fundraising school. You also receive a copy of the book free of charge if you enroll and complete in our signature course, Principles and Techniques of Fundraising. Now, Principles and Techniques is one of the courses that you take to earn our Certificate in Fundraising Management which is one of the four certificates that's offered by the fundraising school through nearly two dozen what we call our public courses. Now we also have custom training where we can bring those courses straight to you or take a little bit from several different courses and tailor make curriculum just for your nonprofit, your association, your region, your subsector within philanthropy. We also have quarterly webinars and these free podcasts. And again, all on our website at philanthropy.iui.edu forward slash the fundraising school. So grateful for our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Dale, our producers today, Mike Anthony and Jennifer Boffman. I'm Bill Stanjakevich. And now you are now more fully informed on this first day from the fundraising school. Mm -hmm.